So thank you for listening to the uh, long overdue podcast. You are uh, listening today to Chris and myself, Dawn and Denise, and we have a very special uh, guest with us today. We're actually on location at the Dallas Holocaust Museum, and um, Max Gruber is with us today. Oh, I butchered his name. (laughs) Max Globen. Globen. G-L-A-U-B-E-N. Okay. I am so sorry. Believe. <laughs> it's believe. That's what it means? It's yeah. believe? That's beautiful. Yeah. So uh, we are recording this podcast because the um, Holocaust Remembrance Day is coming up. And we want to um, be able to share a little bit about the history of the Holocaust and reach people, um, definitely try to keep that alive Mm -hmm. so that it's not forgotten. So Max, tell us a little bit about yourself and, um, and like, I guess a little bit about yourself as a child. Well, I was born in the late twenties in Warsaw, Poland, lived there with my family. My family, starting with my grandfather, and my father was in the Jewish publication, Jewish daily newspapers that were distributed all through Poland. And uh, my grandfather's what's called the Daily Express and my father's newspaper was the daily Das Yiddische Tagblatt, the daily Jewish publication, uh, daily paper. In fact, I was able to obtain a copy on one of my recent trips to really? Warsaw, uh-huh. dating back to September 28. 1938 with the headline that Adolf Hitler just met with Mr. Chamberlain who was the British ambassador, foreign ambassador, whatever. And we lived uh, in the modest house. I went to school like everybody else. Too bad when the war started. Mm-hmm. This was abrupted. To this day, I never finished any schooling. Okay. And everything that I learned is I wanted to learn. Mm-hmm. And everything that I learned was necessary for me to learn to be able to live. Uh, when the war started, of course, the western part of Poland was occupied by Germany and Russia, which not too many people even talk about, mm-hmm. has occupied the eastern part okay. of Poland, yes, and the two armies. I remember as a child, and because it was uh, still pretty close to the occupation, so the newspaper was still printing until it was destroyed, as the two armies met, signed a non-aggression pact. Okay. And then Germany broke it about a year later, then went up to Stalingrad, And that's where, that was about 1942-43, that's where the Germans thought that the empire was beginning to crumble because they had bad, bad things that happened to them in the African front. And if you look in history, Italy was invaded by the Allies before Normandy. 
And by 1942, they had established ghettos in the occupied territory. There were uprisings. There was an attempt on Hitler's life. So in the early part of 42, when this was beginning to happen, the final solution was declared. And at that time, the final solution was really, has really been enforced. And everybody in the western part of Poland under the German occupation was fair game, was loaded in boxcars and taken from Warsaw to Treblinka and Majdanek. Then back to the September 1st, the Germans used a new type of warfare called the Blitzkrieg, a lightning way of taking over the territory, and they bombed more than 85%. So most of the structure were destroyed, no utilities. Warsaw had a population 3% Jewish. That city was just about completely demolished, and the capital that Warsaw was of Poland mm -hmm. was switched for one reason or another. One of them was they didn't have enough structures to have the military government be placed in Warsaw. They switched it to Krakow. Krakow was a city that wasn't touched. So, so I'm curious, you said that part of Poland was Russia and the other half was German. Right. So which side would you have preferred to have been on? There was no matter of preference. Uh -huh. If somebody occupies a territory, whatever they occupied, that's where you live. Mm -hmm. And the part that we lived, the Warsaw, mm -hmm. was a part of the thing that the Germans took. Okay. Okay. In fact, later on, the Russians uh, came pretty close to Warsaw, but never occupied Warsaw. But we lived under the German occupation, and the Russian border was pretty close to the Ukraine, or pretty close to Russia. Okay. They, didn't, they just took a part of Poland that they wanted and let. The, the Germans were faster than the Russians. Uh, immediately upon entry, uh, our life changed completely. If you were a member of the Jewish religion. Can I ask a question before we go on? How did they know? That's one thing that I wonder. How did they know who was Jewish and who was not Jewish? Well, they had a registration. Okay. And we all had birth certificates. And it we has, all had, okay. And as far as males were concerned, the males were circumcised. So if you didn't have any identification, it could be easy developed. Wow. And if you were a female, then you registered at the beginning in certain places. Mm -hmm. And if they felt like it, they added on a middle name to you, which was taken from the Old Testament, like Sarah, Rivka, and males, they could do Abraham or Isaac. Wow. As a middle initial, so immediately you could be identified. I'm not saying that it was done in all the registration places, mm -hmm. but there were many places that have done that. Okay. Laws that the Germans made in 93 were immediately enforced mm -hmm. about entry. And uh, if you were a Jewish person, you could not own any property, and there was looting on the streets and in the apartments. Uh, you couldn't pray. 
if you were a professional person, you could not practice your profession to the public at large. It, if uh, there were people that were preparing the ritual way, the food or the meat, which people who are very religious, they used mm -hmm. kosher meat yeah. and kosher products. This was a no-no. If you're a student in a university and try to get higher education, mm -hmm. it was a no-no. If you were a child, you could not go to school because you were either too dirty or your nose was too long or you were eating something or baked something with uh, Christian blood or with blood in there. Mm -hmm. And the uh, matter of fact is that when you eat kosher meat, all the blood has to be drained mm -hmm. by a salt process that lasts about 30 minutes on a block that's tilted so all the blood will get out of it. Okay. But uh, life became miserable. And then the territory was bombed out. So visually, I hate to compare it, but we had a national disaster in an island that belongs to the United States. Okay. Mm -hmm. And now it's six or eight months. There are sections there that still don't have any electricity. Mm -hmm. And a few weeks and a few months afterwards, they didn't have any water mm -hmm. or food or stores where to buy. But they had their lives. And nobody bothered that other than natural disaster. But consider this, we had this, and our lives were being, you know, taken away from us. Yeah. And also, over here, there are people that are upstanders, and they try to help. Mm -hmm. So immediately, they got help. Who cared for the Jews and the Holocaust? Nobody. So on top of it, we're being destroyed after the disaster, mm -hmm. you know? Yes. Didn't have anybody to help us. And when I talk later, I'll say how I also felt after the liberation. Well, anyways, after all this started, the registration, and the looting on the streets and the apartments with the money that was looted and taken from the elders of the Jewish community. Mm -hmm. They bought bricks and designated a one square mile area close to the Jewish cemetery and make the Jewish people that lived in that one square mile area build the wall around them. So it started in 39 and it was finished in 40. But in the meantime, they were starting with the looting, starting picking up the kids, which was the new generation, mm -hmm. and then getting to the elderly that were Orthodox Jewish people. Yeah. They were recognizable. They had long beards, long sideburns, wore head covering, attire that was described in the five books of Moses mm -hmm. and wore daily when they were praying or on regular basis. Okay. When they were humiliating and burning the beards and ripping off the beards of the older people, they were the roots of Judaism. They were our clergy. They were our thing. They were physically destroying them mm -hmm. in inhumane ways, but psychologically, the Jewish population, because of a member of one's family 
something happens to a member of your family, mm -hmm. the whole family suffers. This went on while the ghetto was being built. When we were building the ghetto because of the conditions, no utilities, no food, no water, heavenly time was in the winter time of 1939 when all this started mm -hmm. there was snow snow falls everywhere you'd go out your pots and pans and gather the snow block up your sink or your tub and put all the snow in it it clears water all we drink some of the rooms didn't have gutters if there were gutters mm -hmm. you could save the water in big drums yeah. So in the morning, Black Friday, everybody tries to get the water. So they let us go out to the Visla River that flows to Warsaw. Mm -hmm. But when you drink that and you don't have enough food, that during the building of the Warsaw Ghetto from 39 to 40, a typhoid epidemic. Oh. The ghetto is quarantined. The Germans are not allowed. They create a Jewish city council. They make them appoint 2,000 Jewish policemen to do the dirty work for Germans. The Germans had to come into the area of the ghetto. Mm -hmm. They had to find us. The Jewish policemen knew where we were living. Mm -hmm. Had to deliver members of their family or friends for the requisition that the Germans said to them, deliver me so many people, put them in boxcars and take them to Treblinka and Majdanek. So it was like they had a quota of the number of people that they... Every day there were quotas. By the time 1942, the early part, by that time, they were taking up to 5,000 people a day taking them to Treblinka, Majdanek, and uh, they didn't have enough facilities to accommodate them, and they couldn't kill them fast enough because on one of my trips, I found out that these places were running inefficiently. And if you go there today, and I was there last year, and in Majdanek, outside the bad house, the deceitfully say bad house and there's a vectic house because people lived under bad condition. They willingly went into the gas chambers. Mm -hmm. Russian captured tank engines were feeding in the carbon monoxide into the bad houses in Treblinka and Majdanek. Treblinka has completely destroyed Majdanek fully standing. And the evidence is still there outside. Wow. Back into the ghetto, when it was finished, mm -hmm. at the end, the three quarters into 1940, they placed the Jews that lived outside the area forcefully into the ghetto, one square mile, one square mile area had 2,700 apartments. They were filled where each apartment had between six and eight people in there. There were no family big enough to occupy a whole apartment, so you had strangers. At the beginning, they were scattered. Then daily call out into big squares inside the apartments and people would barter and swap trying to live with their family. So there was a lot of swapping where it was possible, where it wasn't possible, you just lived with strangers. And even if you swapped, the ration that the Jew received in the Warsaw Ghetto was 184 calories. That is, if he was able to work and receive a piece of paper that entitles him to go to a commissary, mm -hmm. 
and pick up that paper that was being supplied and delivered to the commissary by the Germans. So what about the families? Like the women and children, the men could go and work. The, anybody that can work, women have worked too. They, okay. Because the man would dig ditches, the women could go and work maybe in a German kitchen or maybe in some internal kitchen. There were manufacturing places that okay. were uh, that were doing products for Germany, not for the people in the Warsaw Ghetto. Sure. There were quarters of Germans and Polish guards and others that have been associated with the ghetto. Mm -hmm. These women went out and did jobs for them. Or there's no telling what kind of jobs the Germans desired for them to be jobs with torture. Yeah. So there's not... When you live under these conditions, you also become brainwashed. It's a brainwashing job, and you not become, you, you can maintain the sanity that you maintain as a free, living, well-fed, and well-bred individual. And that's what people cannot understand, and sometimes says, well, how did you feel? I felt miserable, mm -hmm. but I didn't have any feelings because I worried about the food and sustaining life. So how am I going to worry about what am I going to wear the next time? I couldn't buy any clothing. And I had a shirt that might have been four years old. Mm -hmm. So was I worried about the shirt? No. I was worried about what to put in my mouth. So anyways, we lived like that from 19, well, I, from 39, when it was occupied, then I was there. The ghetto happens to be in the place where we lived. We lived on Mila 38. And how old were you at that time? I was a little bit over 10 years old okay. at, the the, at the beginning. And then I lived there till 1943. The youngsters became the backbone of the Warsaw Ghetto. We risked our lives as smugglers trying to bring in a little bit more food to the group of people that were placed in the ghetto, and that was over a half a million that wow. occupied the 2,700 apartments. After a while, People were dying in the apartments. There were children left by the parents that were taken to the gas chambers, to the killing places. The kids couldn't live in the apartments with the bodies decomposing. There was no clear air in there. In fact, for a while, there were good hiding places. If you were running away from the Germans, all you had to go in to one of the rooms, lay down and close your eyes. They wouldn't go into the bodies. So you know what? In 1942, the ghetto was reduced. Originally, we had 26 or 20-some gates mm -hmm. that were all around the one, approximately one square mile. And around 42, when people were dying out, and they were sick and tired of some of us hiding in these apartments. Mm -hmm. So they liquidated and made it only a 15-gate ghetto, moved all the people, mm -hmm. and it took four or five people to move some of the bodies either to the cemetery or to the streets. The children lived on the streets. A sweet way to go was to die by the elements, freeze to death. Wow. I have some DVDs that were made by the Germans mm -hmm. that you wouldn't want to see of how the life was in ghetto. But in 1942, any imaginable disease known to mankind was in epidemic stages, and 
The Germans declared the final solution. Everybody was fair game, so that's when they started to take the 5,000 people that I told you about, mm -hmm. putting them in the barracks, portable buildings. Then we, that's when we were being, well, we were being taken a little bit later on. And then they were putting them in stalls, but the able bodies still had families in Warsaw. So they escaped, uh -huh. went back to Warsaw, won the underground, and that's how the underground started creating squads of youngsters, 18 to 25, mm -hmm. and placed them in apartments close to the 15 gates. I don't know how many, mm -hmm. but more than one squad at each gate would some of the materials that were converted in the Warsaw Ghetto as military equipment mm -hmm. and also very few guns because the Aryan people or the non-Jewish population mm -hmm. was forbidden to associate themselves with the German, with the Jews. They were treated if though they were Jewish if they did, mm -hmm. but they also, some of them were anti-Semites. They wouldn't deal with us or help us in any way. Yeah. So most of the fighting was done with uh, homemade devices. So on April 19th, there was a buildup outside the ghetto. Mm -hmm. There was a new general that was brought in especially for liquidation of the ghetto. His name was Strump. He tried to penetrate the gates on April 19, on the first day of Passover. And we're gonna have Passover next Friday. Yes. So it's pretty close to it. And uh, unsuccessfully, because the equipment was being destroyed, and some of the Germans lost their lives, and the fighters didn't have anything, the most heroic fighting ever. And it lasted to about middle of May, when the general brought in napalm flame throwers. Wow. And it's known, it's known in history that never before has anybody used napalm against civilians. And that was the first time that was used against the Jewish civilians that were the Warsaw Ghetto. Mm -hmm. The ghetto was burned. Then uh, the only hiding places that could have survivors were the basements that were camouflaged and originally used as bomb shelters for the war. Most of them became grave sites because of the extreme heat. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the ones that had some survivors were discovered with the Germans with listening devices and dogs were brought out, placed on boxcars for a ride that took about five days rather than just two hours mm -hmm. like it only took when I went back 12 times on the March of the Living. Yeah. Our destination was Maidanek no food on there, no facilities for any, no utilities on there. Body parts on the boxcars when you're being loaded because they made numerous trips. Mm-hmm. Never cleaned. Wow. The smell impregnated in the wood. And you ride for a ride like that and you're placed on a siding in order to allow the regular trains to run the regular routes. Finally, they would drag you in there. Five days later, you land in Lublin, which is right, the city that Majdanek is right close to. It's a sub suburb of uh, Majdanek. And then we were offloaded, and then the train, uh, you were jilted with a switch engine and the train pushed in a certain amount away from the main gate. Mm 
and as we were offloaded and marched into the gas chamber and the dead camp area, the Germans were selecting able bodies or human beings that were able to go into a, for human experiments or for oh. uh, concentration camps that were supplying slave labor for that. My father was selected for one of the camps, the worst camp I was in, woke you up in the morning. The commander was a young Obisharfira, his name was Fikes, would come out whenever he felt like it on a white horse. And then uh, whenever we were finished with the count, about 4,000 people would ride behind us and single out as many people as you wanted to destroy in inhumane ways. Boasting that shooting and hanging was too good for the Jews. Then we marched to the workplace, having to give you countenance, count, you know, counting, mm -hmm. uh, and singing. And if you didn't do that, you never reached the destination. Then we marched in sections so we wouldn't cause any disturbance or any sabotage in beautiful factories. Mm -hmm. They had art houses for us, and we went there when we were told it was okay, not what we needed. The same with the food, slice of bread a day, and maybe a bowl of soup if you had a container that's big enough to hold a bowl of soup. Or a spoon that you can eat with it. You had to have your own. Yeah, somehow like you organized with all the disaster. Many people were dropping, and sometimes you had to carry all your belongings with you. Or when you, when you went to another place, they weren't there. You didn't have permanent residence. Okay. And that people don't realize that. So if you left something in one place and went the other one, it was forgotten. Wow. Anyways, uh, my father was selected to one of the camps, and it was next to an airplane factory. He grabbed my hand after I went with my, wanted to go with my mom, because they say women and children first. And uh, we went at camp for maybe two and a half, three weeks. Went out in the morning on the Friday morning, came out Friday evening, and the guards took a head count and said that we had three people missing. So they took 10 hostages. For each person, my father became a hostage, laid them out on the Reveille Square, which was called the Appel Square. And when I got up Saturday morning, there were some of the bodies missing. And in place of the missing bodies were the shoes that the person wore. I saw my father's shoes. Oh. So I was orphaned at the end of May. I, no dates, not knowing how. And I went back to that place to in Germany, not to the same place. But uh, I got a lot of documents and like you call Facebook on paper mm -hmm. with concentration camp record with my number and my name and also everything I done from 45 to 47 in Nuremberg, Germany because that's where I lived. Well anyways, I stayed at that camp, then the Allies were coming. I became a pattern maker because I lied that I knew how to do blueprints, and I was able to fulfill my lie better than some of the Germans. So they let me live. I became a part maker for the Messerschmitt and the Heinkel, the two German aircraft that were used by the Germans. Then I was in Budzin, 4,000 people or so. Then I was transferred to Mielitz, 
and I was tattooed on my right forehand with the initials KL with one needle wrapped around the dowel or a pencil and just poked out like that. Don't ask me how deep because I didn't feel it. And pain cannot be duplicated, so I can tell you how bad it felt. Mm -hmm. But anyways, I stayed there for a while. Then I was transferred to Vielichka. That's the place where they also had aeroplane factories, but it's a place where there's a salt mine, and it's a tourist place now also. Not known to me, I was being transferred because the allies were coming and the camps were being closed. But I didn't find that out till last year where I got all my itinerary that actually happened. I usually spoke for 60 some years that I was taken to these three places, then taken to Flossenburg. So I was in Mielitz, I was in Majdanek, Budzin, Mielitz, Vielitschka, Flossenburg. But the truth was that by the time I got to Vielitschka, there were too many people from all the three camps, from Budzin, Mielitz, and Vielitschka, not enough quarters for the people, not enough food for the people, no place where to work. So with the bodies laying around all over, fields of bodies, they took the live ones on a train to Auschwitz-Birkenau. The tracks are full of human beings. So we go to Plashov. From Plashov, about either 2,700 or 17. Hundred were placed on a train, alive, taken to Flossenburg, eight months, 1944. I got there, was an international camp. I was treated as a Jew, again, with different treatment than some of the others. If I was recognizable at a triangle, it was kind of pinkish with my number. I have the list of the people that were with me on the page of 33. There were only six alive out of all the names. And next to my number is my name and the most beautiful calligraphy with Glauben. And at that time they called me Mendel. I stayed there till April 16, called out on a dead march, but they put us on a train that was shut up three times. Finally, there were smaller groups made, and we marched till April the 21st and 22nd, and we met in a place that I didn't know the name till last year, and I knew Kirsten von Walt, and I just, I'll, I'll take it out, I got it on my phone. And that was on the 21st and 22nd because we were shut out and there were very few people left and the ones that were left were wounded, bloody, some of them couldn't walk, some of them being helped and there were farmers with hay wagons following us with masks on leading the horse by its reins and then disposing of the bodies and mass graves. When the Americans came, they made them dig them up and bury them in lesser quantities on there. And uh, I'm gonna correct the names of liberation because my head doesn't wanna, they, but like New Kirsten Balbini, is where I really was liberated by the 3rd United States Army after being placed on a hilly area. And about eight of us ran down from an area that was surrounded with machine guns that were abandoned by the Germans. And we went to here to see what we heard as real loud 
engine noise down in the town. So when we went down there, these were American tanks. So we got some K rations, C rations from the Americans, but the Germans wouldn't let us in. So we went on a farm road trying to find a displaced person camp. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we were on that farm road, behind us came the 179 signal repair corps of the U.S. Army and a kind-hearted second lieutenant didn't think we were going to make it to the displaced camp. Once we found it, at that time, there were no camps. And we felt like we were thrown into it, like you would be thrown into the ocean and said, go swim to the shore, because we didn't get any food. In the camp, we got food, but for the duration of the dead march, mm -hmm. all we ate was what was on the ground, wow. you know, on the trees. Mm -hmm. And in May, nothing is ripe. So if you mm -hmm. eat some of that that's not ripe, it's worse than not eating. Yes. But anyways, I stayed with that. I roamed with that army, and we were liberated around Munich, Augsburg, Regensburg, Schwandorf, Schwarzenfeld, Nuremberg. They roamed into Nuremberg, occupied a place that the Nazis were in, Neumeyer Kabelbergs, was a huge facility, a city within a city. There were assigned Polish guards and German POWs prisoners of war, mm -hmm. and the Polish guards were guarding him, and I became a mess sergeant. And I fed maybe six or 700 people from uh, 45 to 47, when the Congress passed an orphan law, where any child that lost their family under the age of 18, whole family, can apply with the U.S. Committee, be investigated, and I had good recommendation papers from the commander of this comp American company. I wore American uniforms, and sometimes Polish guards uniforms, blue, because I worked for both, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was placed in an UNRWA, orphanage in a Glasterhaus in Germany was asked to take some babies to the council in Stuttgart and he waived the quota and said I want this group in the United States right away. I didn't even wait a month and a half. Came over to the United States on a marine, merchant marine ship converted for shipping of human beings. USS Marine Flasher. It's like the train I was on. That's what, that's what the sound like. <laughs> so I came to New York on December the 13th. I might have landed the 12th, but on the 13th, a caseworker picked me up they turned me over to Jewish Children's Service, put me in an orphanage in the Bronx on Caldwell Avenue, the worst snowstorm since the 18th century. And I stayed in New York for a while, went to some places that made me very depressed, RKO Studio, Radio City Music Hall, and I needed to see that after five years of misery, you know, like I needed to see other things. So I says, out of New York, there were no openings till December 31st, and I went to a foster home in Atlanta, Georgia. Lived there for a little while, didn't know it was a foster home until I just now asked for my papers. I was. So I lived with a Miss Rosenthal, and she was like a mom to us. I didn't know who she was. And in 48, 
when I became 18, I had to register for the draft. And in 51, I was drafted into the U.S. Army. And I finished as a staff sergeant in the 702nd Armored Infantry Battalion of the 1st Armored Division, stationed in Fort Hood. I got my basic training there, went to food service. I'm a student. That's why I became a mess sergeant. Stayed there for two years of active duty. Then I was released. Then I had to stay for three years in active duty because the hitch was for five years. When I was in Fort Hood, I would come into Dallas and I was like a member of anybody's family here in Dallas. So I decided to stay, met my wife, I got out in May, and I didn't have where to go, so I married my wife that I met during the time. I had a car because I didn't have a permanent residence, so after a few months in the States, I bought myself a car because I wasn't going to depend on anybody to do anything for me. I got jobs. And so this is the story. I married in 53. And I have three children. They're not children, they're adults older than you are because my son was born in 54. And uh, each I have seven grandchildren and one great-grandchild. That is the story. But You did really well. Yeah, but I never had any education, but I spoke in many places that people don't even expect me to speak and be able to speak, and I, I spoke in 2000 in Hawaii, I spoke in all the army bases, Fort Silver, I spoke in 2013 in the United Nations Library. Wow. So That's all that I can tell you. Well, I have a couple of questions, okay. and you may or may not be able to answer, so right. that's fine. Um, so a couple weeks ago, um, we had the opportunity, or I did, to visit Dachau. And it was, um, I know that initially when, uh, during World War II, it was not quite the same, but there was a lot of homes right next to the camp. And I was told that that a lot of the people were marched through the town to go to work and that. How could they have seen you and not done anything? How could they not have known what was going on and, and the burning bodies because of the crematoriums? How could you not smell that? Well, this is the difference between a bystander and an upstander. But we were under bad conditions before we were incarcerated into the camps. Okay. But many of the residents there were maybe like we are, and I'm not trying to defend, sure. but I want to do two sides yes. to have this story. And if you're on the green side, you think differently if you're on the other one. Let's say one of the occupants of these apartments had somebody in the service. Mm -hmm. They could be blackmailed that the servicemen's gonna be killed. Okay. When they wanted Jewish policemen in the Warsaw Ghetto, they had the registration. And if somebody refused to be a policeman and do harm to their own, they says, I know where your mom lives. I know where your dad lives. Wow. They're going to be gone. They're going to be corpses tomorrow. Now, that doesn't apply to everybody. Sure. Because one-on-one, -on -one, we are always angels. Yeah. Put us in a group, and we can become a lynch mob because you're afraid of your own opinion. 
to be told to me while we are sitting here. Mm -hmm. If I asked you who you voted for, you might not tell me if you know that I either don't like that person or I don't want to hear about that person. Yeah. Do you understand? Yes. So we have all a defensive mind and how some of these things are being solved are on individual basis because we don't know what we're going to do. But we, if we are a good person, then we do the right thing. Like you drive on the road and you see an accident. Would you stop and run the aid? I would. Yes. But there are some people that will drive on and says, I don't give a hoot about somebody else. Yeah. I have seen mothers get the ration and give it up to the children. Mm -hmm. Then I have seen mothers that eat it and then take out a piece from their mouth and give it to the baby after they've swallowed the rest. Yeah. So that's on them. But I cannot only tell you in Dachau, I went back to the places 12 times and God willing on April the 9th I'm going again with not one bus, but two buses, one children and one adults, right here from Dallas. Wow. And every time I go back, I learn something different. You go to Majdanek, there's a cemetery on the left side. Mm -hmm. The facility is in 600 acres, and there are dwellings all around it. And people were watching. The commander lived right on there with his wife and children. It was wow. a daily routine. People become barbaric mm -hmm. when they get the power. And, uh, and then it's self-preservation because you're afraid, uh, whether for yourself or for your family. Some of them did because they're anti-Semitic. Mm -hmm. And there was a priest out of Paris that wrote a book, Holocaust by Bullets. We had him as one of the awardees mm -hmm. for the Holocaust Museum. There were squads of German soldiers that were going into small communities. And he says that he recovered actual bodies. And his curiosity was, why were people watching yeah. the people being killed climb to trees, stood by their windows, open up the shades, looking how people were being killed? Wow. So this is what humanity is. That's really scary. And it is scary. And uh, in Majdanek, there are buildings all over. Mm -hmm. uh, you're talking about Dachau. I went on a personal tour for a whole day last year uh -huh. to Dachau. Now there's not remainings, but there are some churches mm -hmm. and a synagogue. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you walked into the synagogue. I did it's not. It's down hill on there, and it comes to a point with a small little hole in there where all the souls would rise, you know, it just with a certain purpose. It doesn't have any artifacts in there, uh -huh. it's just a structure. And I went there with a historian, and people knew that it was. There were ambulances that had the exhaust built in to the bodies of the ambulances, transported kids and handicapped people to a destination Aww. that wasn't where they were told they were going, mm -hmm. but either the cemetery or grave outside. Who was manufacturing the ambulances? The ovens that yeah. were that are in Auschwitz, 
that I never were in Birkenau, that were in Majdanek. Mm -hmm. They still existed there, and the contracts were given not who makes the cheapest, but who makes the fastest. And if I told you that there were some designs made and presented that would burn the only but five or six bodies at one time, and the consistency of the body would help create a fire that would not require additional wood or benzene or whatever they were putting to burn the fire. The self-destroying, wow. like Mission Impossible with bodies, mm -hmm. yes. And the people that made these ovens are still in business in our days. Wow. And on one of my trips, I was told that, that it made me sick. Mm -hmm that all the contracts were for the fastest way of destroying human bodies. And more the merrier. Yeah. That's overwhelming. The, this so, is, go ahead. It, it, and that just kind of brings to mind what the, our responsibility as citizens is to, to keep this from happening again. And, and when you know that businesses like that are still and going, and I hate to say this, but some of the things that are happening now, they may be done more on the freedom side with good attorneys that could interpret something in a way that they feel like they could interpret it. Mm -hmm. But what we have to do is what the blessed new generation did Saturday. What's that? I'm sorry. They did the marching in Washington. Mm -hmm. Oh. And they objected to some of the things that are being done. And I don't know how people would like me, but for a manufacturer of items that can hurt people would have the power to overrun the government. That's what I cannot understand. Yeah. And I know freedoms, mm -hmm. and I know whatever it is, but sometimes people should know that freedoms are done for protection of the citizens. Yes. And not for killing. Mm -hmm. Now the killing, and uh, I don't want to get too, uh, too absurd, because if you read the Old Testament, they were killing sheep, they were killing cows, they were doing sacrifices. Mm -hmm. But I learned a proverb in Latin in the Warsaw Ghetto, tempora mutantur nos mutamur in mm -hmm. Times change and we change with the times. They lived in a different thing. They ate different things. They believed in God. Mm -hmm. And this is the belief in the olden days. It's all has changed because our mentality has improved. And we're smart enough to change the laws and the happenings to be adapted to today's way of life. Yeah. But if we live in the United States 
and I came and I'm a citizen and I served in the army mm -hmm. just as much as anybody else and I was grateful that this country liberated me yes. and I live in a democracy. I as an individual don't know a difference between any color of a person Mm -hmm. And I don't know the difference between a Republican and a Democrat. Right. It's a person with a different opinion that maybe I have that wants to call himself and call riffraff by arguing with somebody else. And what I think we ought to do is for Congress and Senate to sit down and call it the United States of America Senate and we all have our opinions and let's make the laws to accommodate both. Yeah, exactly. Like when you go into a marriage, you better obey what your wife says or create an environment where you can two live in peace without a divorce. Yeah. Make him sign a paper. No divorces. <laughs> They'll settle down. Yes. What, what would you say to our children today um, as far as um, within the next few years, survivors like you will not be around to tell their right. story? And how do we tell that story and, and make sure that these people who say that it didn't even happen... Um, that that doesn't happen, that they remember and they... Well, you can lead many horses to water. Mm -hmm. You cannot make them drink. Right. A person that's a denier may deny other things also. And they are I'll tell you what answer I gave after I do the other thing. Mm -hmm. This is why since I retired, I became a 501 and I'm an expensive speaker mm -hmm. and I donate all my money for scholarships for kids because only through education can be eliminated hatred and bigotry on that. We are live in an era right now where the kids that marched are jewels. Mm -hmm. They are 10 times as smart and verbally able to produce sentences that we never thought about. And you see an 11-year-old colored kid mm -hmm. that everybody thinks they don't have the ability mm -hmm. deliver a little, just sentences. And I had tears in my eyes. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Because they are raised in a way that the parents have eliminated the way they were raised. So all the bad things are cut away. These kids have the full freedom. I have a one-and-a-half-year-old grandbaby. She mm -hmm. says, oh! And she says, and she mentions my name or at one, less than one-and-a-half mm -hmm. because the mothers pay more attention to children. You go into the grocery store, you see little three-year-olds picking up what they want to eat. They tell you what they want to eat. Go into a restaurant. They scream if they get something they don't like. Mm -hmm. So they are the future leaders and they are the blossoms of humanity. Because did you see how many? I mean, it's streets with them. Now, when I talk and motivate them, and this came to me a few things. When you were born, your mom raised you. Mm -hmm. Then you went to kindergarten and some good teachers then you go to school, then you go to high school, right. Mm -hmm. And by that time, you have received 
at birth the best computer that you can ever have. And that's between your two ears. Mm -hmm. But the two ears have holes. So it could go in one hole and another. Yeah. So sometimes when you listen, put one finger in one of the sides <laughs> so some of it will stay. But you go to school, to high school, and you become a programmer. And if you're a good programmer for this computer, there's no job or position or even the presidency that cannot build for you if you don't underestimate your power and you become a good programmer. That's the last question. Very right? interesting. <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. So thank you for visiting or listening um, today. Uh, we appreciate you being here with us and telling us uh, your story. And mm -hmm. Very good. Thank you, Max. And thanks, Dawn, for, for the good questions. Yep. You're welcome. And so. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> supreme, supreme answers uh, from, from Max today. Thank you. All Thanks right. for listening.